Hello, welcome back to the podcast. In the in just under an hour radio friendly normally publish in the episodes, which is ten PM UK time on a Sundays. I finally managed to finish enough the editing of the, this week's episode. Took a long slog of work this day as I spent hours on it and I please hope you do enjoy the, this episode. I know for next week's I'm going to have to take a bit more time just to edit over a few days. And I know next week will be a bit of a sort of end for me to edit. So, hope you enjoy this interview with Harrison Abbey. And just to let you know that there is a trigger on it at one point for stuff with uh, OCD and the impulsive thoughts that can be harmful. There's only a tiny bit of that. And... Harrison does trigger warning that be prior to the mention of that. And also he does mention the phobia of sickness and being physically sick, just in case you want to heads up on that. So if you're uncomfortable with any themes and topics ever come up in a podcast, just please skip ahead and just jump to the next bit. Hope you do enjoy this, as I said. And please do rate, subscribe, share this on the, your favourite platforms. Make sure people know about it. And please do contact me at neurocast at aarowcreo.com for the email and on social media, Instagram at Project. That's the new one. Please enjoy. Well, I'm Harrison RB. Uh, I am a radio presenter. Um, it's not really my main thing these days. I'm more of a, a programmer where I sort of uh, help to oversee the day-to-day running of a, a local community radio station um, and also training assistant as well for the because we're a volunteer-led project. So I uh, help with people who come in who want to get involved in community radio who have never done media before and introduce them to the skills uh, and the technology that makes it all work. Um, so that's a big part of what I do in a very rewarding thing that I do and that's my voluntary work. Uh, in terms of my paid role, I am a producer and voiceover artist for Communication Generation, uh, which is an audio production company based in Hampshire. So yeah, that's a little bit about me and my sort of background of the things I'm doing at the moment. Let's dive into the questions. Tell me about your neurodivergent story. Uh, so I'm autistic. Um, I was referred for a diagnosis by my preschool. Um, so obviously very young. Uh, they picked up on some untypical habits and difficulties that I was having uh, when I was there. Mainly the fact that I used to leg it from the hall at meal times because I just couldn't handle the smell of certain foods. And I actually frequently came close to being sick as a result. So it was not a nice experience. And my inability to cope was enhanced, I think, by the crowded environment and the noise uh, in the hall. And also I used to hide in the corner at playtime and back away from other kids. I hated watching movies. I think there was a combination maybe of the unexpected noises and sort of the general drama in them. So yeah, various things. And they basically said to my parents that if they didn't pursue my traits, then they would. And of course, my parents, um, being the wonderful people that they are, did do something. And, and this led to an NHS diagnosis several years later. So I was I was very young. And I totally recognised that that was a privilege to get so young. I wish we lived in a society where it was accessible for everybody. Because do I think my case might have had something to do with the fact I was a young 
young white male who lined up trains and could imitate their whistles? Sadly, yes. And, uh, you know, it's no different to an autistic person who uses other pronouns, having a completely different passion, whether it's reading, animals, science, absolutely anything it could be. And I think my case was a sort of more typical case as a result of harmful stereotypes. And I, I wish that that wasn't the case. But that's a little bit about my story and what led to it. Yeah, it's definitely like something you do regret uh, not having everyone else to enjoy having that position where they are able to have the same equal privilege of being able to get diagnosed young or get signs and traits noticed at a young age. How did your parents notice your traits at that young age? How did they know it was time to pursue getting a diagnosis for you? I guess they had obviously spoken to my preschool who uh, picked up on these uh, habits that I had and the, and the way I was um, really struggling day to day and that of course was the only time really that I was away from my parents so that was a, a sort of a unique environment and the, the a real difference from being with my parents when they're around and not sort of being more in my comfort zone when I'm at home and when I'm out with them rather than on my own surrounded by of course at first lots of people I didn't know particularly people my own age which is still something to this day you know still being relatively young being able to relate to others my age is a bit of a challenge because of my sort of limited interests and very niche interests yeah and, and of course the way I uh, things that I do not exactly going out on Friday and Saturday night down the clubs it's uh, been quite difficult to relate in that sense so yes I guess from an early age all of that became apparent as a result of the, the nursery bringing it up and of course there would have been things at home as well that uh, I, I seem to remember I had um, some lady used to come round and sort of help me with sort of I can't remember exactly what it was sort of about activities like uh, building blocks and stuff uh, when I was three four years old sort of when I was at preschool so there was there was already something obviously that, that became apparent that I sort of had this uh, you know needed some, some sort of extra support at home so I, I haven't actually spoken to my parents particularly the only thing I, I haven't spoken to them about things at home that they noticed maybe before I went to preschool because when I was at preschool that was the, the the real moment where they realized that there was something that needed to be investigated because of those things that the, the preschool picked up. And of course, they're dealing with a lot of you know, supervising a lot of children and uh, they will notice when something is uh, a little bit different. My parents really, uh, I'm sure there were things at home. As you said, it's quite something that both your preschool and parents were able to notice and pick up on that. You were able to be noticed as struggling with being in a loud environment and your own sensory challenges there. And I could relate when you were saying that, you know, like you were sitting in the corner of the playground and, you know, like away from everyone else and struggling with knowing what to do in a bit busy and crowded environments like throughout your life and for being diagnosed what have you noticed like from like whether it's like from childhood to being a teenager now into adulthood have you noticed as your traits and how do you, do you find your traits have like followed you on yes, I guess that particularly sensory overload is a big one. Certain smells, as I say, smell of certain foods was there from a very, very young age. And that's when I used to really, you know, really struggle and used to leg it out of the hall. And that continued throughout primary school. I eventually had access arrangements at primary school where uh, I was allowed to sit on the, uh, I think every primary school probably has the chairs outside the reception desk. Um, so I was able to sit there and uh, eat my lunch there. I went to a, a second primary school where it was a little bit more challenging for them to, or on their part, it was 
was they, they didn't seem to really uh, understand because they I just joined uh, in year six and uh, they didn't sort of really uh, understand the extent of, of, of my struggles and, and my difficulties with, with dealing with that. So it was a, it was a bit difficult when I first started there, you know, for them to put any arrangements in place. Um, but yeah, that one has continued actually, you know, throughout my teenage years and, and into adult life as well. The difficulty with dealing with, with certain smells, particularly around food and also the taste and, and texture of, of certain foods as well. And, um, you know, having a sort of restricted diet and sort of the same meals, you know, routinely throughout the week. So, you know, at least the, the same thing uh, once a week and maybe sometimes more than once a week. And, you know, that's all because of because I'm autistic. And it's something that has been sort of my, my main thing has been sort of food and, and, and diet, I think. Um, another thing as well that has continued, obviously, is my um, limited, limited interests, I would say, but but definitely sort of sheer dedication to what those interests are. And, and I, I do have a bit of a tendency to sort of info dump, particularly uh, particularly around uh, radio, radio industry and uh, railways as well, which, as I say, that was ultimately uh, one thing when I used to preschool and, and sort of play with the trains. I think that was something that, that sort of helped my uh, my diagnosis to come about, unfortunately. Um, I do have a bit of, of, I probably shouldn't feel guilty about that because it's not my fault, but uh, it, there's a bit of guilt there because of, you know, that's the, the stereotype. Yeah, so that that has continued. Special interests is, is the, the term terminology that I know, but I'm not sure if, if the community has um, has moved on from that terminology. So I apologize if, if that's not the terminology that is used uh, anymore, but that that's sort of something that a trait that has continued and I expect to continue throughout my life. Maybe I'll um, sort of find it easier to sort of find more uh, interest and sort of, you know, as I meet more and more people, sort of things may uh, develop further. But I, at this stage, that's uh, certainly something that, that is the case. I, well, obviously, social interaction, that again, so sort of small talk, absolutely hate small talk. And, and also sort of initiating conversations and, and, and unexpected interactions that I haven't been able to prepare for. I always like to sort of think about what I'm going to say, what I'm going to do as part of a, an interaction with someone before it happens. So notice of that is is essential, I think, to my performance. I guess I'd say performance is not necessarily going to be a, a conversation where I'm masking or speaking to someone where I'm, where I'm masking. I might be able to, I might still be able to be myself, um, but still, you know, being able to articulate, you know, string a sentence together, I guess, um, you know, so having, having the time to sort of think about what how this is going to go who the person is what 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 the topic of conversation is going to be so yeah something that has been the case today actually preparing for your um uh, for this interview you know thinking about what i'm going to actually say um because sometimes when you're put on the spot and this is a, a thing that i found particularly challenging about uh, live radio although i suppose when you're in that environment for a while you get used to the, the microphone being there being able to just switch it on and speak and what you say will be the product so that that has helped i think in a way but i still find it challenging and, and I don't think that will I, I can't really see that changing to be honest that's just a part of who I am so obviously when I was doing live radio shows I don't do any live radio shows now but when I was I'd do a lot of preparation beforehand which is obviously encouraged to make the output as good as it can be but in my case it was particularly essential because I would uh, if I if I didn't I would literally just find myself putting the microphone up and and you know I wouldn't literally have nothing to say so you've got to do and, and that's another thing I found about radio as well is, is being a presenter one of the reasons actually I've sort of um, not done a great deal of presentation or it's not my main thing it used to be my main thing but it's not now is because i just found it really hard to sort of be interested in the latest Netflix series things because when you're on the radio you can't just talk about radio you can't talk about radio at all because people who are listening to the radio are not interested in the inner workings of the radio industry you have to be involved in their lives understand the audience and and be able to relate to them and as we've talked about as we've alluded to um, my ability to relate to more typical things is is slacking a little bit so um, that's why I found radio presentation quite hard and that's why I've sort of got more involved in the behind the scenes stuff so that I'm actually working on making radio you know make helping others to to make radio 
studio and giving them the advice that I've sort of given myself in, in that you need to sort of broaden your interests. But for me, it's quite hard to do. So being able to sort of use my uh, knowledge of the industry and, and presentation and, and, and things that I help others with, you know, helping others, I think is, is much more um, beneficial because I'm not always able to follow my own advice because of my limited interests. Yeah. So social interaction, as I was saying, is is, is a big um, part of my autistic life, info dumping, and also analyzing interactions as well after they've happened. So sort of going back through every detail, trying to remember literally everything I said, how I said it, how did they respond? Did their facial expression when I said something suggest that they, or, or their or their verbal response or, or however they responded to me, did it suggest that they now hate me as a result of something I've said or done? You know, really going over the top in my view, point of view. So I recognize that I go over the top with analyzing interactions. That's been a big part of, yeah, my autistic life. Yeah, to definitely think that. Yeah, I've covered a lot of ground there with the sense of special interests as one of your, you know, key uh, traits of being autistic. Personally, I tend to refer to that more as focused interests myself these days. It's like that. I think when you're le- learning about language and all that and learning about being autistic, I think, like, you do use certain language interchangeably. I think it's an evolution of lot knowledge and I think of being autistic and neurodivergent issues. Nothing wrong in using the word special interest anyway. As I say, and it is quite challenging to do something like a live video or video broadcasting. Definitely found that like a challenge in sort of communicating on the mic, like doing this po- podcast and I find it's like a, a learning curve and by each episode and interview then to progress and learn a bit more. Yeah. Absolutely. And talking about how language evolves and the uh, terminology that is used, that's been a huge learning curve for me. You know, I was diagnosed very young, but things have and are still and rightly moving on. As I say, language evolves. And one of the the main ones, you know, my diagnosis when I first found out uh, I was autistic was uh, of Asperger's syndrome, because that was the diagnosis that was used. I think about sort of 10 years ago, that um, was that terminology or that um, diagnosis diagnosis was discontinued. And now we just say that we are all unique autistic people. You know, the spectrum is not linear. You are not less autistic or more autistic than someone else. And it fluctuates day to day, like many disabilities. You know, you you could be, um, you know, able to do something one day and not able to do it the next. It, it fluctuates that much. And yes, as I say, it actually was very recently, it was only about two years ago that I thought I'm actually going to start doing research into my condition, my brain and uh, and how it works and, and sort of engage more with the community and learn more from others who are, um, you know, we share the same neurology, but are very different people. You know, we're, we're not all the same. We're not, as I say, less autistic or more autistic than each other. We're all the same. In that sense, we are all autistic, but we are all individuals. And uh, there are many things that we have in common. Some people will have something in common with, uh, you know, two people may have one thing in common and a different person may have something else in common with them, but another person doesn't have that in common. We are all individuals um, who are uh, autistic. And that is really important. I don't agree with sort of saying um, that there is nothing that we, uh, you know, some people might like to say, oh, well, you know, we're all, um, we're all individual, you know, but no, our neurology is fundamental. It's, it, it is something that unites us and something in many things. I mean, you just look at the community online, people who will share something, the sheer number of people who will be able to relate to it. It is clear that we are a community 
who share the same neurology, but we are all um, at the same time, we are all unique. Um, it's not so much segregate, you can't segregate, I don't agree with, with segregating autistic people in terms of uh, functioning labels, which of course we don't use anymore. I was, or, or I was always said to be high functioning when I was younger, and, and that of course is not high functioning and low functioning, rightly not used by the community and, and um, shouldn't be used in, in any um, profession, in, in any environment now. Because, you know, as I say, we're all autistic and we have different traits that can fluctuate day to day. Um, and, you know, for example, a, a big part of why I was always deemed to be, or as people used to say, you know, I'm high functioning was because I'm, you know, because of my ability to, I mean, I had talked about my challenges, how challenging it can be with communication. There are many situations in which communication is challenging, but my ability to communicate verbally, I guess, and, and come across fairly confident, that has, uh, people used to either say I was obviously mildly autistic or they would, or, or they would say, I even doubt whether I'm autistic at all because they would have a view that, that someone who was autistic was uh, had to be, you know, nonverbal or, you know, and, and, and that's obviously that is just one trait. And of course, different traits require different levels of understanding, different levels of, of course, every trait needs to be fully understood. But I'm saying, you know, different, accepted in different ways, I guess. People need to, different accommodations for different autistic traits. We're all autistic. And, and as you said, language evolves and the, the diagnosis has evolved absolutely for the better, because that is the evidence we have is that we're all autistic, but we are individuals, but obviously we share a neurology and we are, we do share a neurology. So we do, we do share, we do share that we are, we're all individuals. So I, I don't agree with sort of saying, oh, we're all individuals because no, we share that, that neurotype. Yeah, no, you're saying autism is a spectrum. When you look, look at holistic people, people who aren't autistic, they are new, new all, you know, type. Like, it differs between person to person, autistic community, and it's like there will not be one person with autism or who's autistic. That's the same for another person, and that fluctuation can change from day to day, but depending on energy and spoons and stuff like that. I found it myself, like, terminally later on in life, well, when you hit adulthood, about like the age of 18, that I started research, find myself about learning about autism and me being autistic. As you know, like I was diagnosed about 2010 or 2011, like the age of 10, and with like the same label as Asperger's itself. So did you find, as I was labelled mildly autistic or a functioning and Asperger's, did you find for like a certain part of your life you end up masking your autism? Yeah, in certain settings as well, and and particularly around people my own age, just desperately trying to fit in, and that was that was the case, as I say, throughout my teenage years, particularly because you know that's when I really started to feel left behind in terms of my lack of independence, and I sort of still felt like a child, but at the same time, I was often told by adults that I was very mature for my age, and uh, a, a psychic actually said apparently before I was born that I was going to be an old soul. Well, they were very uh, right on that in terms of my, um, you know, the, the way I sort of, um, I guess, live my life. So yeah, it was kind of that conflicting thing of, of sort of feeling young still and, and not being particularly independent, but also, uh, or as independent as my peers, um, or, you know, at least as, as they were, you know, trying to be um, more so than I was trying. And I guess it was more, diff it was always going to be more difficult for me. I, I would have known that because I knew that I was autistic. I knew I was different and that I was going to be a bit behind, but that was challenging, you know, seeing people sort of move on and, and, you know, get interested in, uh, you know, all the things that teenagers do that I, um, yeah, I, I just wasn't um, at all. And, and, and sort of radio, as I say, was my, throughout my teenage years was the thing, you know, that was, I was I, I engaged with the industry. I obviously got involved in radio 
radio from a, a very young age. That was a massive part of my life throughout my teenage years, but it was something that I wasn't really able to share with others around me of my own age. So the inability to relate, and as you say, about sort of being deemed mildly autistic, that was a, a thing that sort of was particularly challenging. I mean, I didn't talk about being autistic with my peers, um, but, you know, in terms of adults maybe accommodating my needs, it was difficult for them to see that I needed those arrangements to be made. You know, those arrangements were needed because of how I sort of came across in terms of my communication and just basically it, it, it just didn't seem right. I mean, for example, it's it's, it's a whole thing of in, invisible disabilities. And, and as you say, that masking, particularly with adults, you know, not so much the masking with adults, but more that inability to see the, the, what was going on inside my, my brain. And that at times I felt left behind and, and like I could have been given more, su more support, but I wasn't because of, of sort of how I communicate, I guess. And I think when you're at a young age, you don't know what support is available and how to ask for that support. And uh, as you said, end up masking it to a certain extent. And I think with the autistic neurotype, as sometimes autism is referred to as being atypical and so sometimes hopefully we end up being atypical, atypical of our peers and peers of our ages. So sometimes we can seem a bit more mature or mature and don't develop and have the skills of somebody our age or we may be more socially or culturally mature than somebody of our age yourself so what do you find like you getting into radio would have been like a way of trying to find some sort of like, escapism or like trying to find something where you felt a bit more like socially involved as radio is quite a, like a social environment. Yeah, I guess so. I'll, I'll take you back to the beginning. So my dad was working full time as a presenter in commercial radio when I was born. Before that, he'd been at Metro Radio in Newcastle, TFM in Teesside, Fox FM in Oxfordshire. And at the time I was born, he was on Power FM and uh, shortly afterwards at sister station Ocean FM in the south coast of England. And uh, I obviously was, uh, I think it was probably my mum brought me in uh, to the building when I, uh, not long after I'd been born, as is often the case at workplaces, you know, uh, someone's bringing the baby in and it attracts a lot of attention. And uh, that was probably my first time in the in the, the radio environment. And of course, I was too young to really understand what was going on at that age. But as I got a little bit older and more aware of and able to, you know, I guess just more aware of what was going on around me, it was just fascinating, you know, this in this environment. And I was very lucky to be surrounded by it literally in my face from such a young age. And it was a real inspiration. And that's what sort of made me, you you know, seeing my dad and also the, you know, his colleagues as well in all the different departments at the radio station was just absolutely fascinating. And it was, I knew, actually, at the t I say I knew at the time doing my bit here for stereotypes again, I wanted to be a train driver because I was really obsessed with railways. I used to spend a lot of time uh, on the Watercrest line, which was the local steam railway and still is doing great work around sort of, sort of between Basingstoke and Winchester. Very nice sort of going from uh, Alsford to Alton, the, the route of the railway and spent a lot of time there as a child and loved the steam trains and uh, obviously mainline trains as well and just everything about railways but obviously I was surrounded by radio and radio was a, another of my fo focused interests continue to use that so focused interests they were the two and as I say that was radio I guess any focused interest is an escape from things that you find challenging and I've certainly found that throughout my involvement in radio and also going out engage in the railway environment as well it has absolutely been an escape from 
from the things that I mentioned earlier that are a real struggle. You know, the sensory overload, the masking when that was sort of more, unfortunately, I'm not really around anyone that I feel I have to mask with at this stage. But I guess quite, you know, I don't really have much particularly of my own age, uh, of a a social circle. And I would like to change that and meet more people like me going forward. So those sort of negative aspects of being autistic. And as I say, there are positive aspects of it. You know, my passion and dedication to those focused interests and the knowledge that I hold. And of course, continuing, everything is a learning curve. You never stop learning. And that's a great thing. I'm always willing to to learn more and about things that I'm interested in. And those that is sort of a, a massive part of being able to escape from the neg- as I say, they're the positive aspects and then there are the negative aspects and there are situations I'm in where I would be lying if I said I didn't wish in certain situations that I wish not to be autistic. And that's when, the, as I say, the sensory overload um, and those social interactions, when I see other people doing small talk with ease, I envy them. That's the kind of thing that I, I find is, is, a, is a real negative for, for me. But overall, um, people sometimes ask you, would you rather not be autistic? And the answer is, I literally cannot answer that, frankly. I mean, of course, I'm proud of who I am. And I support anyone, you know, I just want to say that it's valid to say that you're proud to be autistic and uh, in many ways and proud to be who you are. And I would I would fully support that because we are autistic and we, we don't know anything other than that. You can't sort of detach autism from me. You can't detach it from uh, anyone who is autistic because it is their brain. Their brain is central to everything they think, you know, see and, and, he- and hear. You can't detach autism from someone. If you take autism away from me, what am I? I don't know because it shapes every experience I have of the world. So I guess in that sense, proud of who I am, but there are definitely situations that I find challenging where I just wish it was easier. It makes sense totally because autism is a nuanced thing as many things in life and it's like some positives of being autistic and as I said, there's negatives as well as unable to like go into certain environments and find it so like easy and without going into a sensory overload, maybe at risk of meltdown or set down and stuff like that. Certain social interactions, it's harder to make friends. It can be like isolating on our part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think, yeah, it's definitely valid to feel that you would in certain situations. It's, it's Your feelings are valid. Our feelings are valid. If you would rather not... You know, if you if you wish that you weren't autistic, that's absolutely valid. And there are, as I say, situations where I wish that. But as I say, you can't take autism. I just because it's your brain, you can't detach it from the person. So I, if someone says to me, you know, would you rather not be autistic? Well, you're asking me, would I rather not be me? And on a personal level, and this is, I'm not asking for sympathy here. Please don't think I'm asking for sympathy here. But there are times where I think, oh, I definitely wish <laughs> that I was someone else. Um, and that sounds, you know, that that's to me, you know, people say, oh, I don't think that. But, but you know, it's, it, we all, I think sometimes we all sort of beat ourselves up about certain things. And there are times where I think that, but, but generally speaking, you know, you, you can't, as I say, you literally cannot detach autism from me. I'm, I'm autistic and it shapes every experience I have of the world, literally everything my entire life it, it defines who i am people always don't they say um to everyone oh i think any autistic person will be able to relate to this people saying oh don't let it define you well my brain defines your brain defines you my brain defines me so there's there's no way that autism there's no way that aut- to say that autism doesn't define me it, it, it does and that can be 
a beautiful thing at times. And as I say, the negative aspects of it, it's totally valid if you're in a situation where you're really struggling and you wish you weren't. And, and as I say, I, I often envy um, holistic people who are able to do certain things with ease that I'm finding challenging. Yeah, exactly. I think it's like if you're not living in a world that might not be des- designed for us or accessible to us, sensory overloads and like this somebody where the neurotypical people uh, don't understand our veins and how we experience the world that can in itself be quite challenging negatively as well because it can cause them feelings of like depression and can it creates a bit of trauma if you get all those negative experiences yeah absolutely and it's 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 something that i think is really interesting sort of hearing different people's experiences of you know different autistic lives uh, and how different they can be from each other but also the things they have in common as well and and that you know ability to relate to others who it's easy isn't it often to feel alone and that is the case as well with uh, mental health conditions as well i mean i have ocd i realized i had ocd only probably about a year ago actually I'll talk a little bit about this because we were talking earlier about the sensory overload and the uh, difficulty with the smell and, and sort of texture and taste of certain food and the sort of the sight even of, of certain food as well. Just, you know, all the yeah. senses to do with uh, food and certain smells particularly. And of course, I've talked about the fact that I used to leg it out of the lunchtime hall because I couldn't handle the the smell of certain food and the sight of certain food. Actually, I, you know, as I say, it actually made a, a triggered a physical reaction, which I'm, I'm not sure I've spoken to a few autistic people who can relate to this i'm you, you may be able to if you're listening to this now and and um, struggle with certain smells but you actually come close to being sick sometimes you know you actually have that that gag reflex at certain um certain smells certain um you know it feels like it's sort of hypersensitive in in some autistic people and certainly is for me and uh i actually when i was really struggling so i got through um the first primary school and then when i started the second one i started uh this is second primary school when i was in year six so i only did a year there and when i had to go back into the lunchtime hall at first i was starting a new school and that was all that was really on my mind so the first few months leading up to christmas amazingly i was able to sit in the lunchtime hall and uh be with the other kids while they were eating then when i came back after Christmas, so I'd been there sort of three, three or four months. Um, and I came back after the Christmas holidays, and all of a sudden, these issues that I had, or dif- difficulties, I should say, rather than uh, issues, because that makes it sound like there's a something, something wrong. Of course, it's totally valid, but uh, just needs accepting. Um, but yeah, these these difficulties I had with coping with the, the lunchtime hall all came back at this other primary school after the Christmas holidays, and I guess it was because I'd settled in, I'd met people, and and that was no longer much of an issue. It was more the the other things were coming back and sort of overshadowing the because I think actually maybe I've, the way I see it is that when I first started and I didn't know anyone that the the fact that I was in a totally new environment sort of starting afresh that wasn't taking over as much because I was more that in fact that was taking over from the issues I had or difficulties I had at, at the first primary school so um yeah and then it was sort of I, I realized when I came back after the Christmas holidays at this other primary school that I had emetophobia uh, an extreme fear of throwing up and um that I think had come about because of my the, the reaction I had the sensory reaction I had to uh, around food and and in that environment and so I obviously for years thought, oh, well, I have a metaphobia. I have an extreme phobia of throwing up because of my sort of hypersensitive gag reflex that I was mentioning and, um, you know, coming close to being sick. It was traumatic. And uh, yeah, as I say, I went through the years um, and that was sort of the main mental health condition that I had. And more recently, I've noticed other signs of OCD. 
and and actually emetophobia and OCD have a lot in common because vomiting is you know an, un, an unhealthy obsession that I I had. Uh, I noticed that I was also sort of had uh, sen- sensory motor. Uh, OCD as well, which is sort of hyper awareness of bodily functions, sensations. So particularly when swallowing food, you know, I actually had real trouble um, eating because I'm so focused on swallowing that I'm sort of afraid that I'm because I'm focusing on my swallowing that I'm going to choke on my food. So that kind of thing, you know, as well. And that is this all comes under OCD. There are also minor things that I have to do with OCD. Um, They're minor in my case, but for someone else, I apologize. They may be particularly um, um, debilitating. But for me, you know, turning the lights on and off and uh, washing my hands a lot, although that's largely because of the fear of contracting something that would make me um, physically sick because that's phobia. Um, But, you know, sort of those more actually OCD stereotypes that I fit and sort of piecing those sort of minor things in my case together with the really debilitating stuff. I realized that it all comes under obsessions and compulsions. And so uh, I've recently gone back to the mental health team. I have, uh, you know, explained that my difficulties that I'm facing all sort of come under this OCD bracket. And I've done that through my own research and um, sort of self-diagnosed. And I'm currently waiting for a, an actual diagnosis of OCD so that I've got this thing to work with. And I can say that every, all these different mental health, you know, these different issues that I have come under OCD. And that will then be there in writings. Be having that certainty that actually everything, because I think all my mental health issues have been related to OCD and they've all been obsessions and compulsions. Um, all these different things that I thought were all separate from each other and that I had various mental health conditions, it all sort of comes under OCD. And I think I've read a, a great Instagram post the other day about how um, autistic people may be more susceptible to OCD because of the way our brains work. And of course, we know that autistic people are particularly susceptible to to mental health conditions, as you say, the, the fact that the world is built for people with a different neurotype, sort of having to try and fit into the world. And, and obviously, it, it, it's, it's understandable why that is the case. Sad. Uh, it was interesting to you, you talking about your CTM quite candidly. And from what I heard, you, a lot of it was educational and informative to myself. And I think of it to a lot of listeners listening to this podcast, as I was wondering about the link with autism and OCD. And as you said, for yourself at least, with uh, being autistic, the sensory sensitivities has led to some trauma and some phobias and anxieties. And that can occur comes under the umbrella for OCD and oh did you find yourself coming up coming to find that it's all under this umbrella and or have you found a rare process? So I guess it was the, as I say, the, the other, the, the emetophobia was the main mental health condition that I had for years. And then it was the other things that I was struggling with, particularly around the sensory motor obsession of focusing on my swallowing when I was eating. And also my, um, uh, another one as well is a lot of people, I don't have this one so much, but sort of focusing on hyper-focusing on your breathing uh, as well. And sort of, you know, breathing is a natural thing that just happens uh, as part of the, the human body. But when you sort of get caught in a thing of, you know, noticing it, worrying, you know, and then the anxiety that creates noticing it thinking by thinking about this am i going to struggle to breathe am i going to get enough oxygen and that sort of cycle that you get caught in and it's the same when you're swallowing food as well um sort of thinking you know oh my goodness am i going to choke now because i'm the swallowing process isn't happening naturally it's because I mean, of course it would if i wasn't focusing on it because it's it's second nature to us we just put food you know we just eat we just eat and that was always the case throughout my life recent years it's it's become sort of more of a sensory motor as it's called obsession and uh, actually when I first went into the mental health team, they said, um, sort of struggling to differentiate, which was quite disappointing, between autism and a mental health condition. 
And it was sort of all being lumped together, not necessarily them saying that autism, a thing that needed to be uh, treated. Fortunately, it, well, it wasn't that, but it was sort of going the other way and saying, well, these issues are probably because you're autistic and, um, you know, it's it's part of who you are. Um, but I guess they were willing to work with me on sort of helping to cope with th- those difficulties. So I guess in a way, they sort of were suggesting that maybe maybe the autism could be treated. I'm not absolutely clear on on particular conversation, but fortunately, to cut a long story short, we have proceeded with the suggestion that I will be able to get a diagnosis of OCD and that will be something to work with at future mental health appointments so you know and, and sort of work on on this idea that all these different things that i struggle with and of course it is it is a bit of a challenge sort of being able to work out what it, i to to be fair saying what is autism and what is ocd what is a mental health condition and what is my neurology in my case the way i see it is the anxiety that that I have around sort of, as, as I say, the, the the eating thing and and the swallowing food that is entirely OCD because I, I mentioned I think may have mentioned it at first at the mental health appointment and the the chap said oh well um you know your hyperfixation or whatever is 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 a an autism trait and yes that is an autism trait but this particular hyperfixation is an obtained mental health condition it's 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 something that I, it's it's not a hyperfixation that brings me comfort or joy which autism focused interests as we say are this is something that is really ruining my life and it's a it's a obsession and i'm doing take ages to eat as a as a compulsion to sort of mitigate it so um yeah I, I guess that was a bit of a challenge sort of working out what what is a mental health condition that can be treated and what is just who i am and i'm of the view that the mental health um the anxiety and depression that i have struggled with and, and continue to is not you know directly because i'm autistic of course it may be more susceptible to mental health conditions but it's not it is the mental health conditions are something that I believe I can overcome. But of course, my autistic traits, well, that's just part of who I am. Exactly. As you said, I think a lot of uh, autistic people find that it is hard to get support or get access to mental health support or like a mental health team. And I think some people find of any tool like the, the distinction between what is a mental health condition or what is autism gets quite jaded and blurred together and that, that distinction can be quite difficult for people pursuing diagnosis with certain people whether like female uh, autistic women and girls get diagnosed I think it's of like finding it like if they get diagnosed with something like a mental health condition it's harder to get a diagnosis for autism so like there could be something for the mental health team and health teams to understand a bit more about autism. Yeah, I agree. And I think there is a lot of understanding that is needed that isn't currently there in a lot of industries, actually, not just obviously particularly important in in healthcare to accommodate for autistic people's needs and sort of to work with them in a way that they feel comfortable as a result of their um, neurology. But yeah, as I say, acceptance generally and it's not just acceptance the key thing is understanding actually genuinely understanding how someone is you know how someone's brain works and sort of you know i I do think that that is really really important for people in the workplace you know colleagues and particularly managers bosses to you know for their autistic employees to understand their differences and to accommodate for them and of course really important that that obviously comes under acceptance um and accepting it but i I sometimes think that acceptance i think there's a there's a difference between acceptance because i think acceptance you could say that understanding is a big part of being truly accepting but 
uh, actually uh, the word that sometimes gets confused with acceptance that is a horrible word is tolerance and people saying you know we're we're a tolerant so I, I really really send shivers down my spine when i hear that word being used in the context accommodate or, or claiming to accommodate and understand someone's needs if you're just tolerating them you're not genuinely necessarily understanding and accepting them so i've heard the word tolerance used in terms of like an, uh, again support and access for people's needs so you need yourself uh have i heard it used again sorry have i heard it used T- towards me or being tolerant of me do you mean yeah fortunately not no oh that's good to you yeah no i i haven't had that that fortunately that hasn't been said oh yes we yeah we can tolerate harrison i mean probably has been said but yeah. not in this not in this context fortunately um but i i wouldn't be surprised if it had been said um you know someone maybe someone listening to this now if you're listening to this now maybe you have heard that you know or had that used you know saying that they're tolerant of of autistic people i i, I it, yeah it just do you understand it just sort of makes me uncomfortable yeah. that that word you're tolerating is like well we can tolerate them you know it's no actually yeah. understand them and accept them yeah understand that and i think sometimes it's not about saying a word explicitly but i think if you say like imply it by either accents or other words not really me but going the full mile of like actually so you accept, embrace and include somebody and I think like without saying about tolerance uh, it makes you feel like they, it's only is but tolerating. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. And I think, yeah, it it is about truly, as you say, embracing, understanding that person's, you know, how they experience the world and what they have to offer. Because, you know, people may think that autistic people for some strange reason they might think have nothing to contribute in terms of up against someone who is holistic someone who is not autistic i don't know why they would have that view because autistic people have so much to contribute even those who are non-verbal you know they have so much to say even though they're not verbal so um you know don't communicate verbally so that Yes, I think that is just something that that absolutely needs to be understood is the the sheer amount of, you know, as I say, the, the, the positive aspects of autism are hugely beneficial, particularly to employers looking for someone who is, you know, really, um, I'm just using this one example, you know, completely dedicated to their work. Um you know, and 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 that in itself is a is a huge benefit, and of course the ability to hold on to that knowledge and an understanding of the of the subject matter um, is hugely valuable. So it's actually the complete opposite. If anyone thinks that someone who's autistic is less valuable to their mission than someone who is not autistic, actually, um, autistic people have a huge amount to contribute. And as I say, we are human beings. You know, that, that's another thing that, that sometimes people might dismiss as almost as human beings and sort of say that we're, I don't, I don't know, but they, they would probably never actually, well, you'd be surprised, wouldn't you? But I was going to say they probably never actually use any other, you'd probably never try and suggest that we're not human beings, um, but they might sort of treat us like aliens, um, which is just awful. And, and you know, it's it's completely just shows a, it's just ignorant, isn't it? It's completely ignorant. And, 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 and we are, as I say, there are so many positive aspects of autism um and and that's why you know and and we're human beings we just need to be as i say genuinely understood and accepted as you know un- understanding as part of that acceptance is fundamental 
there's a lot of uh, evilism uh, targeted out like non-speaking autistic people and there is a lot of still even still evilism is targeted and uh, discrediting people uh, discrediting people's value of life and you know that in itself is like the worst kind of evilism to hit on, on with and as I said that with like employees and employ employers anyway and like so any like certain uh, organizations it's about like accepting that we're like as with like not making that we're a negative like sports could be like negative traits or attributes like used against us uh, discrimination yeah it is and as i say as you know if you just want to i mean and it's awful in so much as being discriminated against for your autistic traits that as you say the sort of um things that you struggle with that you know should then there needs to be that understanding of it and acceptance of it not just tolerance as we said earlier but actually looking at what that person actually has to bring to the party other than you know the the, the things that they struggle with because the, the things that they struggle with in those yes okay i'm autistic that defines me the way i experience the world and of course it does bring with it challenges um in certain situations the things that i struggle with what, what i will say while well, autism of course shapes my every experience of the world and does define that i would say that it, at the same time the things that i struggle with as a result of being autistic don't define me that those are not the only thing i mean of course yes i'm autistic i'm always going to struggle with certain things and that i guess that 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 does define me because those things that i struggle with won't change i'll always struggle with them but it's that's not the it's not the only thing that do, do you see what i'm trying to say that the positive aspects are absolutely crucial they are more important when you're trying to find someone to employ in a certain role you're not going to you, you shouldn't even be looking at the things that they struggle with it's about what they can actually bring to that role yeah yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I understand. Like, for people, whether you're employing someone or, like, trying to, like, enroll someone, that, you know, like, understanding needs to be there. So even if you didn't know they were autistic before they got into the room, for them to be able to, like, yeah. not look at autistic traits is a bad thing. And we need, yeah, I think on that basis, we need to be more understood. And as yeah. you said, it's like a thing with what pe- somebody's defined as is not one singular thing because everyone is like different and has so many different factors and qualities that mix up their human who they are as a human being and like there's so many nuances to that they should only be um i said that they they really should only be looking at the what they can bring to the party what i'm trying to say there is that in terms of the, the their qualifications for being hired in that particular role um, particularly in the workplace, I'm talking about specifically in the workplace here. If you're applying for a role, it should be about what you bring to the party. Um, and when I said that they shouldn't even be looking at the things that that person struggles with, my what I'm trying to say there is that that is not obviously, you know, I'm looking for someone who, um, of course, if it's if it's someone sharing their story or, or or with lived experience, then that's you know very important. But but sort of a general you know role, maybe particularly in the radio industry. Um, where someone's let's say someone's applying for a um, show producer role um, at a radio station um, and it, it's purely about their ability to produce a show and work with a presenter and uh, obviously um, you know organize a show that is th- th- their ability to do that is the reason that they would be um, you know given the job um, and actually the the, the, st- the stuff that they struggle with wouldn't come into 
necessarily them being, of course, diversity and inclusion, absolutely fundamental. But I'm saying that, you know, someone, an, an employer is, it should, when they're going, when they're hiring, um, they're hiring the, the they're hiring the, um, the person who can who can do that job and they they i was trying to say that they should actually um the, the the stuff that they struggle with um is something that should be that that shouldn't come into it if someone struggles with something that's one thing but they might be really really ideal for this job and yeah so i guess what i'm trying to say is you shouldn't be discriminated against if you struggle with certain things that aren't directly related to well of course if you struggle with with anything but um you know yes my point is is that the, the employer should be looking at the positive aspects of okay what i'm trying to say uh, is that i got there in the end is that an autistic person you know has a lot to bring to the party and the stuff that they struggle with shouldn't be used against them as i said you know like it's going for a job it should be about if you can't do the right job qualified for it then great pretty much that i think you were saying yeah one easy way of putting it on t- it's like, well, you know, when you said that people need to understand autistics, people's needs and we have needs of somebody with OCD, what, when, what things would you like them to be able to understand? I've covered quite a lot of it in terms of autism that actually we're not, we're not all autistic people and uh, autistic, all of us as a society, not just autistic people, but people who say that we're all a little bit autistic or we're all on the spectrum as some people would use that uh, lazy term, a lazy phrase. Um, And it's just not true, is it? I mean, autistic people are, you know, autism is a particular neurology um and uh, so so that's something i wish people knew um that we're all unique that obviously you can't look or sound autistic we all look and sound different as, as all individuals do um you know we anyone of, of any age any gender any race um can be autistic we, we don't all fit all the stereotypes that kind of ties in with the whole thing of you know not all being the same all being unique and uh yeah and i i wish as i say that that's the that's the thing really is is understanding that people um autistic people are all anyone of any age uh, you know any demographic can be autistic absolutely anyone and just understanding of the fact that we're all unique and in terms of ocd i wish people obviously knew there's sort of a similar ballpark really that that, that it's not all about of course a lot of people will you know, wash their hands a lot and turn lights on and off, which is something that that I do as as someone with OCD. But it's that's I, it's certainly in my case that I mean that's not it. Okay, that's not all. That's that's that, that a lot of people think that a lot of people would use it as a sort of term if they do something repeatedly or a particular or are particular about something. They'll say, "Oh, I'm so OCD about that," um, which is very demoralizing um, because those of us who have OCD as a mental health condition, as I say, are spending two hours eating a meal because, and this is just my case and some people with OCD will be able to relate, I'm sure, um, because of the sensory motor obsession of your swallowing, um, swallowing the food and, and struggling because you're sort of anxious that because you're focusing on it, you're going to choke on your food. That is, is what OCD can look like. Having intrusive thoughts. And I, I just a a trigger warning here um regarding um a, a trigger trigger warning regarding um harm um but it can be having intrusive thoughts about wanting to harm yourself or, um ending your life or uh, you know you can sort of maybe of course people who um have suicidal thoughts as a result of um a, a mental health condition but this in ocd it can be you know not expressing a you know, knowing that, that there's not something that not a route that you want to take, um, but you're actually afraid that your brain is going to make you 
do it. That's something I've struggled with, you know, having thoughts around certain um, kitchen utensils, shall we say. And, you know, it's 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 horrible. It's really, really horrible. That that's OCD. That and, and of course, turning the light on and off and washing your hands repeatedly is, is a common OCD um, trait. Um, but that's not all it is. And you're not if, if you do that, you know, that if you, if you do that, yes, you may well have OCD, but it doesn't mean that everyone who um, who does that or, or just being particular about a certain thing means you have OCD. OCD is a mental illness. It is debilitating. And uh, so I wish people wouldn't sort of use it lightly, I guess. And in passing, it, it is a, a, a genuine, um, horrible mental illness. Um, so yeah, kind of similar. It's, it's all sort of to do with stereotypes. I wish people knew that there were, um, you know, that every case is, is unique. Um, and that it's, it, as I say, it's, it's not all, it, it's not sort of binary, you know, there are lots of different ways that you can experience, um, both being autistic and having OCD. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. As I said, you know, with OCD, the main stigma is often people use it as an adjective or see it as something a bit perfectionalism and something like as the age of per- perfectionalism and cleanliness. Some people aspire to being all Bill CD in that area, but that's, as you said, it's not OCD, as you said. Like when, as you said, OCD, there's the, the spectrum of it being quite debilitating and, as I say, you know, like, quite damaging to your mental health because, you know, like, as I said, it can lead to having harmful thoughts. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's those intrusive thoughts and obsessing over them. And uh, the way I would describe actually the difference between, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, an Instagram post that I saw about autistic people being particularly susceptible perhaps to OCD, but also the uh, something that has been talked about a lot is the crossover between autism and OCD. And the, way, the, the best way I can describe the difference between the two, of course, is that autism is a neurodivergent, um, a neuro, you know, you're neurodivergent, you're autistic. Um, it's your brain. Your brain is wired differently. It's actually something you're born with. Um, and, um, you know, it's a, a, that, that, so that's, that's what autism is. It's something that can't be cured. It's something that is, you know, ultimately a d- defining factor of, of, of certainly for me, you know, who I am. And it, it does shape every, every autistic person's experience of the world if they're autistic. So it's actually, you know, part of who they are. And, uh, in many ways, as I say, that can be a, a, a great thing, um, along with the negative aspects at the same time. Um, an OCD is a mental illness and something that can be overcome. Um, and I personally, of course it's valid, however you feel, I personally am really, really keen to beat it, to overcome it. And, to um, it's going to be difficult, but, but it's, it, and actually, you know, routine routine is talked about a lot with autistic people. They have routines. Um, as I say, eat, I eat the same meals routinely. Um, I do this, I go to the same places routinely. Um, I, um, have this, you know, do a lot of the same activities routinely. And I do that for comfort because it makes me feel content. OCD is not so much routine. It's actual obsessions. Um, and also as I say with autism, hyperfixations and focused interests are because you, uh, get comfort and joy from them. But OCD, the obsessions are, uh, intrusive and um they're actually debilitating as i say they actually particularly for me have ruined my life a lot of the time and it's yeah so so the difference is is that ocd is a mental illness autism is 
part of who someone is and uh so the, and as i say the, the routine crossover is is the big one the routines in autism being for um you know comfort and joy and ocd being um harmful and um wishing that you weren't obsessing over something negative that's that's the way i would describe the difference Excellent. well well anyway like uh, as i said that's the valid and quite a valued point made as i said well as i will say it's like ocd is quite disabling and debilitating in that way because it's like you worried about like from if you don't carry out that routine or like like that activity or of what your brain's telling you to do it then you like you could be worrying and that something is harmful or like something's like extremely wrong is going to happen when as as you say like autism routine can be their source for comfort even though as you say if with autism if you don't have that routine it can still cause like meltdowns or shutdowns and be anxiety there yeah nope i totally agree with you absolutely yeah and so, like you said, your OCD, you want to come overcome it, and you can overcome it. Some people might not know it's a thing you can overcome. So how do you think can they be able to do that? It's a very good question. It's something I'm yet to discover um, because I haven't overcome it and I, I still struggle. I'm currently on a waiting list for occupational therapy, not something I've tried before. I don't know a great deal about it, but it's something that I'm willing to try. I've, I've tried a lot of therapies over the years, although I've only realized that OCD was sort of the overriding mental health condition in things that I have experienced, particularly the emetophobia, which was the main thing for years. I thought that was a standalone thing. And I got um, some hypnotherapy. I tried CBT, um, although it wasn't sort of, it didn't really progress because I didn't really click um, with the therapist. Um, and that's really important, I think. Um, but yeah, it was... Um, you know, I guess trying different therapies. Um, and yeah, I'm just going to say, I'm, 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 I, I don't know what the answer is yet. Um, I don't know what the answer to your question is. I don't know what the answer to overcoming OCD is. Uh, but I hope and I'm optimistic that I will find out. And, and certainly, you know, I hope the things that I struggle with are at least reduced, if not completely eradicated. Um, so yeah, if it, my advice actually, uh, to sort of answer what you, your your point there is, uh, if you are struggling with with OCD and uh, and really you know are struggling to see a way out, I promise you there are there 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 you know there are things that that you can try. There are ways through. It's just finding what it is and and being able to access it as well, which I wish was easier. But unfortunately, all the therapies I've tried in the past, CBT hypnotherapy actually i say all the therapies oh talking therapy um all that um, as well sort of sat down although that really didn't do anything for me because that was sort of sat around a table just chatting um which you know you can do with anyone um and helps a lot of people which is great but for me it, it wasn't the answer um so you know there are there are lots of things that you can try and, and admittedly most of the things that i have done uh, the treatments that i have tried have had to be um private which has you know i'm it's it, it, yeah it's um obviously it costs money and it's not as accessible as I, I wish it was. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's so yes, my, my point is that there are things you can try and, and keep the faith, absolutely keep the faith. You, you will find a way through it. I promise you. Um, 
it's just about finding that way and it can take time it can really take time but you will get there and i do believe i've heard from people who have said that they have overcome ocd and uh or at least as i say had it the, the effects on their life negative effects on their life much reduced and i believe that you know together if you're listening to this now and you're in the same position we will get there that's all i'll say excellent to hear your optimism about ocd and how you hope to at least overcome the like the negatives and like lessen of the effect on like how it affects you and your day-to-day life and how we can stop you and find it quite a debilitating and disabling thing and I said it's got to you about your uh, the what therapies you've been for for autism or mental illnesses we've been autistic and it's good good to you that you know like you're on on the road for occupational therapy though uh, this is the first time you're in about to do for OCD by still not knowing much about these things. Uh, so like in this sense it's a learning curve for myself. I've only been to all occupational therapy uh, for uh, uh, dyspraxia. Did you sorry, did you say that you have you have uh, tried occupational therapy? Yeah, occupational therapy for, for dyspraxia. So I think it's like it must be a thing, occupational therapy. I'm still not sure, like, how, how they must... don't know anything on, like, how, you know, like, it would be done. So, like, don't quote me on anything. So Yeah, um, like, my, my knowledge of occupational therapy is limited at this stage. It's just something I... I what I wanted to do was sort of let, leave it to the professionals and, and, um, and, and let them sort of decide what route I should take. And I'm just going to sort of be led by them and, and, and try things because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just the, the way I've sort of done a lot of research of my own. I've presented things to the mental health team and I thought this is their opportunity to sort of take a lead on it. So that's something that they have referred me to and uh, I will, um, you know, wait to hear back on that. I don't know a great deal about occupational therapy, but what I'm guessing is it's a sort of way of um, actually focusing on, you know, occupying your thoughts i guess is that is that the idea that that you have have of it um you know sort of you know sort of occupying your mental capacity with things that um make you feel content as opposed to intrusive thoughts as with ocd and perhaps other things that you might be struggling with oh well i think it must be like a totally different means of like occupational therapy then because as you said it was for dyspraxia so that, you know, like, which affects your practical skills. So it, it was then working on building my own practical skills and, you know, like, uh, with stuff like that. So I think maybe unless it's, like, more, like, focusing on, like, like therapeutic skills that could occupy your thoughts. I, I wouldn't comment on it, where it would be for you, because I think by the same day, it's, like, a totally different way of it. Yeah, and as I say, I th- I, I just having a look here, uh, occupational therapy uh, it involves practical tasks. Now, I specifically said that talking therapy, which I'd tried for years, yeah. wasn't going to do it. So I wanted something a bit more hands-on, and it sounds like occupational therapy um, can sort of is sort of what we were we were saying. But there are different, you know, forms of occupational therapy for different conditions. Yeah. 
Um, so as you say, dyspraxia, which is also, of course, a neurodivergent um, condition. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there's uh, mental illnesses as well. And, and um, also, interestingly, on uh, the NHS uh, website, it says that occupational therapy uh, can even help if uh, for, for someone who, who's getting older um, as well. So there, there are lots of different, I, I guess it would be adapted to that individual's needs, which is absolutely what is needed for, for me, you know, something specific to the things that yeah. I'm struggling with. And, and in my case, OCD. So yeah, it can, it can work um, with lots of different conditions and lots of different aspects of life by the looks of things. So definitely worth something yeah. worth exploring. Yeah, yeah, I guess, as you said, it's been more t- tailor driven and, you know, it's more specific and as there is probably like CBT or, or talking therapies, it's been more general and like with talking therapy as such. It's uh, okay if you got like certain trauma that you need to talk for or depression and anxiety generally. But I guess for oh, like uh, OCD now that's affecting yourself, that might not provide the help that you need. Yeah, I I really hope that there is a, a way through. And I do believe there is. Um, and as I say, th- th- there will be a way through. It's just finding it that takes time. It's taken a long time for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's hoping. Yeah, so like on the topic of mental health, or in terms of like wellness, wellness and uh, self-care what has helped you cope in hard times or, or like helps you feel a bit more happier if you're not doing that great with like anxiety depression or like stuff like that yeah engaging with my focused interests so uh, i'm really lucky to be involved in uh, petersfield's shine radio which is a community radio station uh, in hampshire and the team there are so lovely all volunteers as i say many of them or most of them never done radio or any kind of media before um and they're just people who want to give something back to their community and uh you know so all really lovely people and a real joy to work with and and being involved there there's always something to do whether it's helping someone uh or you know the tasks that i do behind the scenes in um you know, helping to uh, oversee the day-to-day uh, broadcast output, um, or you know, bits of uh, you know, making some jingles, or uh, there's always a publishing something on the website, or um, editing a podcast, whatever it is. There's always something to be done, and just sort of really being engrossed in it um, can be a, a welcome distraction. And similarly for my other. Uh, focused interest which is specifically steam engines now I, I didn't used to be i used to used to be more interested in sort of rail all kinds of railways including um sort of normal um normal trains but now it's mostly steam engines and um i never tire of um you know watching videos of them speeding up and down the main line particularly um you know because it's just and interestingly i think that that as i say it is a a stereotype and uh i accept that it is one that i fit into um and i think it is something that a lot of autistic people do relate to you know we, we can't say that that's not the case it is definitely but uh it's it's not the only it's not a defining fact it's not diagnostic criteria to be passionate about railways yeah. um but you know it is something that a lot of us share and and i think that may be because of sort of a theory that i have anyway i don't actually know what it is why a lot of people sort of it is a common one um not the not obviously not as i say it's not diagnostic criteria but it is a common one and i think part of the reason maybe is the consistency of them because there's 
track and they we, we love consistency i think a lot of us autistic people don't we we love the sort of consistency familiarity yeah. and when you've got a train going along a track it's only going to <laughs> this is just my theory but a train going along a track is only going to go where the track is taking it it's not going to suddenly go off in a different direction that you're not expecting it's very consistent um and you know what you're going to get when you see a train that's just my theory maybe that's it certainly for me um i i I can't really explain i I just cannot explain what it is about steam engines that i like but i think it's i think it's the novelty of as i say it's particularly when i see them on the main line mixing with normal everyday trains you know in and out of london or, or wherever they're going and then you've got a steam train there you know doing you know maxed out doing as, as fast as it's allowed to go on the main line um is just so thrilling and i can't really describe it but it is thrilling yeah. have a look for yourself if you haven't already <laughs> oh well i've seen you playing two clips of you like looking out for trains and you know like there's something in reason to see like oh you know like the joy on smile on your face of like seeing oh there's train and you know they would be quite surprised if it did turn the other way or like you know you'd be like properly stunned there i could imagine but I think it's one of the great things about being autistic and the positive, how like the joy. you can find joy in the small things, yeah, the yep. joy in that. And I think probably like since trains is a common uh, interest within the autistic community, I bet you find a lot of comfort in finding a person when you start and engage with the community that I could chat to many people about trains. Uh, yes, it is, as I say, it's something that, a lot of us, uh, you know, many of us do have it in common. Um, as I say, I, I think it's really important to stress that it, not all of us, and it's not a diagnostic yeah. criteria. I really cannot stress that enough because it is a stereotype that a lot of people uh, buy into. But yes, it is one that we have in common, and it is nice to sort of share that with others. Um, although I would say I'm not quite as dedicated to it as Francis Bourgeois, uh, but I, I'm certainly, yeah, I certainly do love a good steam engine. Yeah. Well, I definitely would have failed on that that test of like trains. I like I like them, but you know, like I find more like enjoyable looking out to the window on a train and just like seeing the towns and cities or hillside go past. Yeah, and enjoy like the the view. But as you said, it's a, like something in in about it that can bring you together within a community. And I guess when you started to research autism, I guess it's not like something. It, probably end up talking to like most people in your day-to-day life but then you probably started going on Twitter or Instagram and live and finding autistic people that's it yeah that's yeah probably was the choice speaker yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, the, the the way that I have sort of tried to engage more with the community has been down to social media. And there's so much said about social media all the time about how it is a negative force. And in many ways, it is. Uh, and it has changed the world, not always for the better. I think we would all see how it has been damaging in, in, in certain ways. But for me, it is absolutely a lifeline. The people I have met, the people I engage with, um, you know, not just from the autistic community, but talking here specifically about the autistic community, meeting people who have things in common with me at last, you know, has been such a, it's something that I 
can hold on to and think, you know, I'm not totally alone in this. And that's something that I think is really, really positive that has come from social media and particularly the online autistic community. Um, and yeah, it's it's really nice to be able to share um, not just the joy of the things that I'm interested in, but see the why. And this is actually kind of ties into the whole thing about it's not just a select few stereotypes, um, because seeing the huge range of focused interests that different autistic people have um just whatever it is that joy it's unmatched you know it, it is is really special and and always lovely to see i don't care what um the interest is just seeing that joy is really special and um yeah. it's something that we all purvey that is wonderful even for most um it should be for, for everyone for everyone it should be lovely to see the joy of autistic people um you know engaging with their focused interests because it is a, a it is a, a a really special thing and it, it you know that positivity is so uplifting yeah really like i think sometimes you know of course for social media can be challenging and it's not an easy place to navigate but I said it's like with social media you wouldn't be on this call talking to each other right now. Yeah. And it's like, it's nice great, great to have to meet people we might end up meeting in real life or it's talking to you online. Yeah. On their voice. Like, we might feel a bit lonely or like, like having not, no one like us to talk to. Her. And like the stuff you can learn online about being autistic on every reviews and it's so much valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And as I say, um, I would not s s condone getting all your facts um, and news from social media. Um, of course, only from valid, trusted sources. But in terms of the autistic yeah. community, I've learned so much um, just from real human stories um, and real lived experience um, that different people have had. So um, in that sense, it's hugely hugely valuable um but yeah as i say it, it, you're right you know it's, and as we said social media has not always done particularly discourse any favors um yeah. but for many people it's a lifeline and i would certainly say that in my personal experience of social media of course you see things that really annoy you um people saying ridiculous things unfounded claims all that conspiracy theory rubbish yeah. and every, all the negatives about social media right but for me my personal experience of social media admittedly i'm on it all the time um seeing what other people are, are up to and posting things myself and engaging with people that social connection that it brings obviously it is social media um the, the positives for me personally massively outweigh the negatives and i think you know yeah. both sides of the coin have to be looked at and i think it is you know for many people me included a lifeline yeah i agree because like sometimes yeah, of course it can be harmful but then it's, it's sometimes you're left of the feeling that whatever you're going for you're not alone in this mm. yeah and having that validation that you're not alone is important yeah. and and social media has allowed you know you post something you, you could say to one person have a conversation with one person in a coffee shop a friend or whatever say, say your situation they could say oh yeah I, I know how you feel or you know I've, I've been there before or something like that and and that really helps to 
um, you know, you feel less alone. But if you post something on social media and suddenly you've got hundreds of people saying, yeah, that's me, you know, um, I've been there and um, I maybe even saying, you know, I did this to help overcome it. Um, that is, you wouldn't have that without the connection of social media. So I think, you know, we have to embrace the positive aspects of social media. And of course, um, without turning this into a political uh, a podcast, uh, yeah. you know, we um, there, there are things that perhaps should be done to prevent the neg- a lot of the negativity uh, around social media. But it, it can be a real force for good, certainly in my case. Yeah, I agree with that. And one thing I want to talk to you related with yourself, special in, or focused interests anyway, is uh, like how you've been able to use like the means of radio to like raise awareness for mental health and autism because I know you like uh, to, went on the talk radio programme. Yeah. Presenter Daryl Morris talking about autism anyway. Yes, that was... Uh... Wow, that was a year ago. I can't believe it's it's been that long. But yes, November last year, I was uh, invited on by um, a friend of mine, Daryl Morris, uh, who is a presenter now on Times Radio, Talk Radio or um, Talk TV as it now is, uh, sister station. Um, and he's very good. So I'll give him a plug. Uh, Saturday and Sunday nights, <laughs> 10 till 1 on Times Radio. Uh, very, very good show. And uh, yeah, I was invited on his show on Talk Radio uh, as he was uh, there um, Saturday night, uh, November last year, to talk about autism. And uh, it was a, around the time that Christine McGuinness had uh, announced that she had received a, a diagnosis. Um, and um, and and um, Melanie Sykes as well. And it was a, a big talking point. And I was uh, delighted to be invited on to talk a little bit about my own experience and also quashing some of the stereotypes that we have talked about in this. Um, and uh, in terms of how I've used my personal involvement in radio to talk about my experiences, I've done a few one-off specials in recent years with Petersfield Shine Radio about uh, my um, mental health struggles, um, as I say, my OCD journey, as I now know at the time I'm recording those programs, I didn't actually know I had OCD, so that's all out of date. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and using that ability to connect with the listener um you know because they care what you have to say otherwise they wouldn't be listening so it's a really special thing to be able to have that one-to-one connection with the person listening and in many cases they might be able to relate or um get in touch and say you know as i said to you before just now with social media people get in touch and say you know i've been there Um, and that connection is really really special so um i to be honest there is so much more that i think i you know could be doing with um with radio and and audio and you know to and and that's part of the reason why i agreed um to chat to you because i thought well i i i really like helping others by sharing my story and 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 to say helping others to feel that they're and and realize actually that they're not alone um and that's something i say that radio can do really really well and um yes let's say there have been many times actually um even before I was uh, involved with the uh, Petersfield Shine Radio project, um, previous radio shows I've done where there have been things that have been talking points um, around mental health and probably around autism as well. I've definitely mentioned it on other stations that I've been on in the past. Um, You know, the fact that I'm autistic and shared a little bit about my experience and sort of my 
unique perspective on a particular thing that has been in the news or you know a, a talking point and um it, it it that connection that you can have by you know bringing your own experience um you know and, and your lived experience and sharing with with others it just it's it's not so much about you it's not for your benefit because everything you do in radio is for the benefit of the listener so everything you prepare every bit of content every song you play you're playing it for the listener not to satisfy yourself and actually the reason that i um like to talk openly on the radio and in podcasts about my own experience lived experience is because it will no doubt reach someone listening who is able to go actually I'm struggling with that or I have struggled with that and I would like to share my advice. And then you get people talking and then you can share other perspectives on it as well. And that community spirit of radio, you know, I'm really, really pleased to have seen the radio industry dipping its toe into the mental health conversation, particularly in the last few years. It's so, so important. You know, we've had initiatives uh, like the Mental Health Minute that um, Radio Centre brilliantly have uh, organized for the last the, the commercial radio uh, the body for commercial radio uh the industry have uh, have have um uh, th- that's who radio center uh, is uh the, the mental health minute it's a sort of a minute long uh package with celebrity voices and uh you know talking about the importance of really listening um and uh, raising awareness of the fact that um someone might really be struggling and making sure that we ask each other um you know really meaning it when we say are you okay you know those kind of conversations around mental health um the radio industry has really stepped up in terms of you know raising awareness of not just awareness yeah. but also um acceptance and understanding as we talked about with autism uh, around mental health um so and the reason that the radio industry can do it so well as i say is because of that connection that radio has with its listeners yeah as you can tell you but as you can tell when your interest and focused interest in regional let's say i'm fairly quite interested in regional myself started is like with like things in the community with it and you know like oh it can be quite positive so force for good and as you say you know like it's provides you a place where you can kind of talk openly on about being both autistic and struggling with mental illness and mental health. And as I said, the conversation can be quite valuable for so many listeners and so many that wouldn't you would be surprised how far it reaches. And Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's great because you know it it's something, you know, that does help, you know, having that you know, like space where you can talk about it and, you know, like it takes a lot of courage to actually go on a radio station like you did with Daryl Morris and you make times to start the conversation and quite to listen to like a live uh, medium. Yeah, and it's, it's, um, it really is an honour to be able to share my story and to reach others who may be in a similar position or didn't realize that there was someone else in a similar position and actually it works both ways as i say you do everything in radio for the benefit of the listener i mean when i share my story it is in the hope of reaching someone who is in the same position as me who is feeling alone and wants to hear someone else um 
you know who who is going through or or, or who who has been through what they are facing and but actually you get it back when you share your story as i say people get in touch uh and that you know that they're in a similar position and it, it works both ways in that sense it's that whole thing of creating um a sense of community a sense of unity um so yeah that's um that's absolutely something that radio can do beautifully yeah. and as i say really really important uh, going forward that the industry continues to fly the flag for not just awareness i think we're coming to the point now where mental health awareness and awareness days are um of course you know people need to be aware of things if they're not but i think so many people are aware but don't necessarily understand or accept and i think you know we've talked about that specifically this evening with autism um about how you know understanding is part of genuine acceptance it's the same for mental health conditions as well and 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 and, and, and physical conditions and all kinds of um you know literally all things that need to be accepted um that is the, the the thing going forward is is actually flying the flag for accepting um and as i say yeah talking specifically about radio the ability to reach and connect with people one-on-one -on -one is a, a really powerful it's a such a powerful intimate medium um and perfect for doing just that yeah and i guess probably like value of working in like a local community station and kind of like flag awareness or like bring awareness to like wherever like mental health support is there in your community in petersfield yeah and as you say say it's like great because i think radio is fundamentally a place of making you not feel alone and like when i turned radio on in the past like wherever scott mills like you feel less alone and like to a certain extent where even now as i said when it flicked over to times radio Yep. Before, you know, like, some not present and talk to you is so beneficial. Yeah. And so what what would you say to anybody who would be, like, who's new and divergent and trying to get into the radio industry? Um, In terms of, I, I would say, um, actually on this, specifically about getting into the radio industry, I would say that you, if you are looking to bring your passion and your dedication to the uh, industry, then absolutely you're, you're going to be, you're, you're, you being part of a team in the radio industry is going to be so, so valuable, hugely valuable because as I say, it's that, dedication that you know just passion that you have for it so i would say um that that gives you definitely an advantage so uh yeah go for it i would say and uh sort of general advice for getting into radio for anyone looking to uh get into radio this would go for everyone um it's easy to sort of look around at the structure of the industry and you know and see stories like we've had at the time that we're recording this in the week that we're recording this we've just had the announcement of huge cuts at bbc local radio or local bbc radio as it is now and um you know the fact that uh, every presenter at every station is at risk of redundancy a really you know awful situation to be in particularly in the um you know economic turmoil that we're in at the moment um and the cost of living crisis um you know to, to be in that position with your your livelihood is is 
really horrendous. And of course, um, I'll just say now, given this is my first, um, you know, time that I've um, sort of spoken, you know, using my voice uh, about this is, is my thoughts are with all those affected. Um, going back specifically to your point about what would you say to someone looking to kickstart their career in the radio industry as i was saying it's easy to look around and sort of think well commercial radio is all national now um you know very very few virtually no um paid roles perhaps in um local commercial radio because they're all um you know coming from somewhere else out of london or manchester and uh, it's easy to look around and think that um similarly at the bbc with the uh you know the the job cuts there and uh, it's easy to sort of look around and think oh well there's not really much point because the industry is getting smaller actually the industry is thriving nationally there are uh, more stations broadcasting on national dab and also on um local dab multiplexes as well um some of whom will be offering um paid work um so don't give up would be my big sole advice, really. Don't give up. If you want to work in the radio industry, there are more roles in other areas that didn't previously exist. You know, when we go back to the 80s and 90s um, of, you know, ILR, independent local radio, and the jobs were largely, you know, at stations broadcasting from cities around the UK. Um, and there were obviously presenters all day long and often through the night as well um broadcasting from that city for that city and there were obviously people working you know in the news team in uh you know off-air roles um at all of those stations and it's easy to look back on that and think well there were so many more opportunities then than there are now but actually there are new jobs now because of the fact that radio stations are no longer just broadcasters they are multimedia brands you know uh, capital for example doing very very well on tiktok um and all the social media platforms um you know there, there are there are new digital roles within the radio industry um, and a great place to start if you're looking to specifically to be a presenter because you might be looking for an off-air role in which case there are a lot of roles um at a national level um in commercial radio and at the bbc um but if you're looking to be on air um those roles are actually a great place to start because then you get your foot in the door. Um, and of course, you know, it is a challenge to get your foot in the door because you've got to work hard um, and sh really show what you can do. Um, but as I say, my main piece of advice would be not to give up because there are opportunities out there, new opportunities, not the same as the ones that were available 20 years ago, um, but there are different opportunities and you can seize them. Yeah, as you said, like there's a lot of value moving behind the scenes and like I was starting out to feel like when to be on it, as like doing assistant producer working as like a PD intern. Like as I remember you in the like stories about like Annie McManus or like Jordan or full broadcasted on radio and started out in that area. And I went to like start uh, to conclude the map after this interview as we've been chatting for almost two hours now, rather than minutes for, for when I was on 40 minutes. So it is, well, is there anything else that you meant to say that you haven't had the opportunity to do so yet? Well, we've covered an awful lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. I, I don't know. I can't actually remember what we discussed. Um, 
two hours ago when we started. So I probably covered yeah. it then. So I don't, I, I don't think there is anything. There's nothing that springs to mind that I haven't said that I uh, wish I'd said. Um, yeah. but no, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. I didn't don't realize how far how long interviews had to go on for. Anyway, so what one what one thing would you like people to take away from this interview? Um as I say, kind of going with the theme that we've had throughout, um, that if you are struggling as a result of um being autistic in a neurotypical world, um, that you're not alone. And that um if you're listening to this and you're not autistic, um I hope that it's helped bring some understanding, shed a bit of light on my personal um, situation and also um, things that others, other autistic people will relate to as well. Um, different things that I've said, you know, different autistic people might relate to and others might not. Um, it's it's totally different for each individual. But I, I, I hope that it's, yeah, I just hope it's helped to shed a light on my autistic life and finally is there anywhere people can find or follow you on social media or any projects that you want to promote and direct people to uh yes yeah, so i'm at harrison rb radio on twitter on instagram uh i'm also on linkedin as well just search harrison rb uh i have a youtube channel that is mostly just steam engine videos so if you're into that then you can find me on youtube that's also i've got a youtube handle now so youtube.com uh slash at harrison rb radio uh or of course you can just search harrison rb uh my website is harrison rb.com where i uh post some um show reels and blogs as well about the radio industry uh and uh, of course you can get in touch with me through my website as well and of course on social media thank you thanks aaron and just like that that's the end of this week's episode thanks you very much to harrison um, i'll be for coming on and i've enjoyed chatting to him and he, he's given some great answers and plenty of chat to listen to. I've had the privilege of just being able to lay back, sit back and enjoy to hear him chatting along. And next week on a podcast, we got Rosemary Richings. She's an author and a journalist who's done a book on dyspraxia and we're talking all things dyspraxia and dysautotomia on that episode. I hope you'll enjoy that next Sunday on Sunday the 11th of December 2022. We'll have episodes going for mid-Sunday for December even on like this planned Christmas special and one for New Year's Day. Stay tuned and enjoy the rest of your day and uh, that's a good Goodbye from me until next time. And now I get to have long deserved rest after the day of editing and put my feet up. So long.